13 verse 1 to start with it. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menea, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. If you follow me down to verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidia, Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. And then, if you're in my Bible, we flip over the page to verse... 43. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who walked, talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. And continuing on in verse 49. The word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barabbas, and they expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. All right. So from Acts 14, starting at 1. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Verse 5. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. It's funny, isn't it? They remained there no little time. This is going to be no short sermon. <laughs> and this is no clever iPad. Is there a reason that's not coming up? All right. While we wrestle through that, we'll get moving on Acts 13 and 14. Now, you might be a bit annoyed 
that we skipped a whole lot of verses, some of them what you thought uh, might have been the most important or the most interesting. We're actually going to do this over two weeks, so we are going to come back to some of those really juicy bits uh, later on. But let me give you uh, the setting. I was going to give you a map uh, to show you where uh, Paul and Barnabas went, uh, but we can skip that for now. Essentially, they came out of Syria, uh, which is uh, what we know as Syria today, and they went into Turkey, uh, and they went via the island of Cyprus. So, you know, had they sailed uh, directly to Turkey, they probably would have bumped into the island of Cyprus, so they stopped there anyway. Uh, and so let me, let, let's just talk about the setting uh, that Paul and Barnabas find themselves in before they go out. So Paul and Barnabas have just come back from Jerusalem. They've been there delivering aid to Christians in Jerusalem because there's been a famine there. We know that from the end of Acts 11. Now they've come back to the church in Antioch. And the church in Antioch seems to be a church which is actually quite well established. Uh, In fact, from here on in the New Testament, we see the church in Antioch as, as a main launching place for mission in other parts of the world. Um, and in fact, this is where we start to see the living out of that mission that Jesus gave. You'll be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. This is the ends of the earth part. This is where it starts. Mission is no longer coming out of Jerusalem. Even though Jerusalem was where Jesus set up the church, now we see the church being well established in other places and actually sending out from those other places. And we can see from their text that this is actually quite a well-functioning church. They've got prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Menaean, Saul. Um, they're, a, they're a well-functioning church. They're a good church. They've got lots of good teachers. Uh, and Paul and Barnabas are a functioning part of the church. They're not visiting there. They actually belong in the leadership there. Paul has gone to the church in Antioch from Jerusalem. So he was sent there. In Acts chapter 11, he was sent from Jerusalem to work in the church in Antioch. And when he got there, he then, not too long after, he went to Tarsus to fetch Paul and bring him back to Antioch to work with him in the church. It was kind of like a recruitment um, exercise. And they've now been there working together in the church in Antioch for about 12 months. And they're doing what church leaders normally do. At this time, they're praying, they're worshipping, they're fasting. And as they're going about their leadership responsibilities, they receive some specific guidance from the Holy Spirit. Set aside for me Barnabas and Paul, sorry, Barnabas and Saul uh, for the work which I've called them. Now, whoa up, right there. How does the Holy Spirit say this, you might ask? Was this an audible voice like we hear uh, elsewhere in the Bible? Or is this one of those, you know, I feel like I'm being led? Uh, Why do they suddenly get a new job? What was wrong with the job they were doing? Were they doing a bad job? Why does God send them off to something different? Why did the Holy Spirit give them such specific leading when I've been asking for that for years? Well, I'm glad you asked. Firstly, we don't know all of the answers to those questions. We don't know whether it was an audible voice or whether it was a strong heart impression, so I'm not going to dig into that too, too much. Sorry, that's all right. We're going to leave the uh, technology where it is. 
We don't know whether it was an audible voice or something different. So I'm not going to answer that question. Either way, we know that God's communication was heard and understood not just by the individuals, but actually by the whole of the church leadership. And I want us to take that away as a really strong principle. Actually, God's call was felt by all of them, not just by one. Secondly, this is actually not a new job for Paul and Barnabas. And I can say that for two reasons. Firstly, this is an extension of what they've already been doing. They actually are already sharing the gospel, preaching the good news, building up God's people where they are. They're not just sitting around wishing that they could be useful in God's kingdom if only they knew what God had for them. They're not waiting to receive God's call as such. They're not passively waiting on the Lord. Those of us... Those of you who are in our small group, our young adult small group, would know the big discussion we've had on that phrase just recently. The second reason I can say this is not a new job is because actually this is a job that God had already chosen Paul for, or Saul, I should say, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. You remember when uh, God met Saul, Jesus met Saul on the road to Damascus. He was a bright light, he made him go blind, and he sent him off to Ananias and then God warned, he forewarned Ananias and he said, hey, there's a guy called Saul of Tarsus, he's going to come here. And Ananias had a bit of a panic attack and he said, I have chosen him as my instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. It was actually already a job that God had set aside for Saul to do. Now, whether Saul knew that at the time, I don't know whether Saul got uh, any knowledge of the discussion Uh, that Ananias had had with God. But it was clear that that was God's choice. So this is not a brand new, out of the blue kind of thing. Thirdly, these guys are not sent away because they were doing anything wrong or they were doing anything insufficient. But God did have something else for them. They were not doing uh, uh, a bad job. They were sent out because they had actually been doing a good job and they were effective It wasn't like uh, they were lacking peace in their roles. It's not like they were at the end of their pastoral contract and it was time to rethink. It was none of those things. Fourthly, their experience, I've got to say this to you, their experience is not normal or normative. And when I say that, what I mean is the experience of them getting specific direction from God to go and exercise their gifts in a particular place at a particular time is not the normal biblical pattern that the Bible says we should expect for ourselves. It is, that pattern is associated with uh, usually a specific message for a specific person, e.g. the Old Testament prophets. They were given a message and say, hey, here's a message, go and tell it to so-and-so and go do it now, e.g. Jonah or it was associated with the establishment of the New Testament church. Either way, it should not be our expectation. We ought not find ourselves sitting around saying, Dear Lord, please tell me what to say and who to say it to today. We already have that guidance. So, how then, you ask, how am I to know what God's will is for me? How do I know whether God wants me to be a missionary, for example? How do I know whether God wants me to serve in Australia or overseas. If it's in Australia, should it be full-time? Or should I be a layperson with a job? How will I know what ministry God's calling me to? 
How will God tell me whether I should study Bible college to prepare myself for that? While I'm at it, how am I supposed to discern even what VCE subjects I should do? Or what university I should go to? Or what degree I should study? What about choosing a potential partner? How will I know when I've stumbled across the one? Will it be chemistry or will it be something else? Should I study chemistry? (laughs) How does God tell me his will? What about when we marry? How will we know whether we should have kids? How soon should we have kids? How many kids should we have? I could go on and on and on and on. You get the vibe. But these actually are common questions and they're good ones to wrestle with. And I'm going to try to avoid getting up on a hobby horse, although it might be a little bit too late. And I'm going to say just two things about what we commonly refer to as God's will. Firstly, I'm going to describe to you the traditional view that people have or some Christians have of God's will. And I'm going to try to challenge that view a little. So the traditional view of God's will is this, that God has three forms of his will, if you like. And they are this, God's sovereign will, that is the ultimate plan that God will bring about in the world, regardless of what you, I, or anyone else does, his sovereign will will be achieved. We can see that in the plan of salvation, the the way he took the nation of Israel, uh, and we know that from looking at the Bible and what what God talks about what will happen in the end days. Those things will happen regardless. Neither you nor I nor anyone else can stop it happening and those plans will be achieved. Secondly, there is what God calls, or what is referred to as God's moral will. That is what God says is right and wrong. His unchanging view about morality. Again, it's very clear from the Bible that God has spoken those things and he's made them clear. And those don't change. In fact, this afternoon, I think there's going to be some discussion about those unchanging moral views of God. Thirdly, there is what's referred to as God's individual will. That is a unique plan for my life, which I must find and follow, in order to be and do what God wants me to be and do. It's that last form of God's will which is most contentious, if you like. And I'm going to go out on a limb a little bit and say to you, I don't think that that view of God's will or that description of God's will, God's individual will for my life, is supported by scripture. Now, some people are going to say to you, what about that verse, you know? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. That verse is often used in an inappropriate way that actually is God talking to the nation of Israel and say, hey, I know my plans right now for you, people of Israel. For us to claim that verse is ourselves, um, he's probably no, no better than me saying, God's going to give me the, uh, the land of Canaan and I'm going to inherit it for myself. The second thing I'll say about God's will is this. God's will has already been made clear to us. If we ask ourselves, what does God want for me? Actually, the answers are already in our Bible. Between those two covers is a whole lot of statements about what God wants for us, what God wants us to become, how he wants us to live. We sometimes tie ourselves up in knots, asking ourselves, I wonder what God's will is, when 
Sometimes the answer is already there. Let me give you some examples. God wants us to love each other. God wants us to submit to one another. He wants us to share the gospel with those who don't know it. He wants us to shine a light. He asks us to show hospitality. He asks us to be generous to the poor. He wants us to become more like Jesus. That is his desire for our lives. There are apparently, I didn't count them, there are apparently 1,050 directives in the New Testament alone about what God desires us to be and to do. 1,050. Please don't ask what God's will is. <laughs> we already know it. Now, I'm going to say this is not about legalism. All right? This is not about if I follow the 1,050 things, God will be pleased with me. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is when we look for specific guidance for my life, sometimes what we're doing is saying, I don't want to make a decision. I want God to make a decision. God has told us the principles by which he desires us to live. Let me give you a really good example. I read this fantastic article. It's from a news service I subscribe to, and uh, I recommend it. Headline, everything local man feels led to do, he coincidentally really likes. Don Farmer, 43, reported on Tuesday that he recently was led by God towards several things he really likes. And in fact, as a general rule, everything he really feels spiritually moved to do, he coincidentally enjoys very much. For instance, last week, Farmer was considering whether he should go to the men's golf outing or volunteer at the city soup van. When he says miraculously, he just knew what to do. You could say, I felt really led to lend my support to the church golf event. Farmer confirmed. It would have been great to volunteer at the soup van, but I had to say, here I am, Lord, send me. Send me even to the ends of the fairway. (laughs) Plus, I recently purchased a new driver, which I took as a definite sign. Additionally, he felt led to attend the church's grand final party, which it just so happens that he thoroughly enjoyed. The next Sunday, Farmer was unable to sign up for the church's outreach visit to the senior home or the juvenile detention centre due to a lack of a nudge from the Holy Spirit. But he did feel moved to participate in the men's annual chilli cook-off. He was also able to fend off several invitations by the church's leadership to be discipled, sorrowfully noting that not only would it interview, interfere with Tuesday's TV lineup, but that he just didn't feel like he was being led to study the word in that season of life. It isn't always easy listening for that still small voice that just so happens to send me to the things I want to do, says Farmer. What would, I, well, would I like to volunteer for the house building project? Absolutely. But what can I do if the spirit is leading me to go alongside my friends and go to the finals? You get the point. Sometimes we can be looking for leading to the things actually when we already know what it is that God wants us to be or to do. I'm not going to deny that some people experience a specific leading, and that's great, but I don't think the Bible supports this notion that all of us need to wait and find the blueprint before we decide what it is that we need to be or to do. So in life's decisions, both large and small, just like Barnabas and Paul had to make a whole lot of other decisions, 
They didn't just follow the map. They weren't given a map, in fact. They were just told to go out. What is the question that's got to be answered? I think the question is this. Which decision will best enable me to be or do what I already know God wants me to be or do? I'll say that again. Which decision or which option in front of me will best enable me to be or do what I already know God wants me to be or do? That question can be asked a whole lot of ways. For example, what will help me to exercise my gifts? Will this draw me closer to God or will it do the opposite? When I'm around this particular person, do they bring out my best or my worst? Will this help me to become more like Jesus? Is this purchase a wise use of the money that God has put in my hands? And so I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. If you're waiting on the Lord, I won't get hung up on that phrase for a second. If you're waiting to know what God's willing is for your life, what exactly are you waiting for? What exactly are you actually waiting for? Can I ask you to ask this question of yourself instead? What decision in your situation, the decision that you need to wrestle with and come to, what decision will best enable you to do or to be what you already know God wants you to do or to be? And if you're unsure about the answer to that question, then can I encourage you to ask for wisdom? God says, if you need wisdom in your decisions, ask. He's very, very willing to give it to you. So, now that I've got off my hobby horse, we can move on. The first mission trip of the New Testament, it's not really, but actually it's just described as Paul's first missionary journey. This is the start of that outward-focused mission activity that we knew was always coming when we read that um, that commission in Acts 1.8. This is the ends of the earth part. And if we're using today's church language, uh, we'd describe it as this. Jerusalem church plants a church in Antioch, sets it up well, builds it up to the point where they're no longer receiving, they're starting to send. They're led by the Holy Spirit to send Paul and Barnabas out And they're not just sending anyone, they're sending their very best. They're actually sending their very best. This would be a little bit like the satellite church saying, you know what, the senior pastor's done a great job here, but now I reckon someone else needs him more than we do. The receiver has become the sender. And if you're in the Jerusalem church, you go, oh, they're all grown up. They're on their feet and they're doing what church does. The church holds a commissioning service for them and they send them out. And the mission trip is not one of these, you know, three-week flings. This is somewhere between six and 12 months. That's a serious mission trip. Paul and Barnabas go out. Uh, they've got at least one other person with them, John Mark. They share the gospel as they go. They make the most of their personal backgrounds and their experiences and their knowledge and the way that God has equipped them. They face a huge combination of welcomers and haters and incredible hardship, but they don't take their circumstances or their battles as 
indications that they've made the wrong choice. They're bold, they're decisive, they're clear in the way that they handle the issues that they face. And when the trip is done, they report back to their sending church and they report back what God has done through them. Not what they've achieved, but what God has done through them. So it's nice to have the history. It's nice to know where they went. But if this is going to have any value for us today, then we need to extract some truth and principles from it that can shape our beliefs and our hearts today. So what are those principles? What can you draw out of the first mission trip of Paul? I think there's three. And I think they are these. The church has a mission. Our church has a mission. Mission involves strategy. And the gospel should be oozing out of us. The gospel actually should be overflowing out of us. Let me talk to you about the first one. The church has a mission. In a book by John Chapman called Know and Tell the Gospel, he writes this. Someone once challenged me, is there a clear and direct command in the Bible that tells us that Christians must engage in evangelism? I replied, yeah, about as much as there is to read the Bible and go to church regularly. Strange, isn't it? Given the prominence of, and the importance of God's word and gathering as a church in the theology of the Bible, you would think that there's a great number of unambiguous commands telling us to do those things, yet we don't find this to be the case. All the same, based on what the Bible does say about these activities and the implications of this, very few would argue against reading the Bible and going to church. What he's really saying is this. Sometimes there's things that we take as absolute givens. Of course we should read our Bible. Of course we should pray. And then those things that are a little bit harder, more uncomfortable, less convenient, we say, well, is there really a biblical imperative for me to do that? It's kind of a little hypocritical way to deal with the Bible. The church is often regarded as being God's ambassador or a light in a dark place. But can I challenge us about one thing here? Swimming in the culture that we live in today, we sometimes treat our church and ourselves as completely separate entities. Let me give you an example. When I come here on a Sunday, I put my offering in the, to the bag. That's my way of serving the church. And I expect the music to be relevant and inspiring. I expect the speaker to speak in a way that I can understand. I expect the pastor to listen to me when I tell, me, when I tell him my problems. Because I live in a consumer world. We all do. We all live in a consumer-driven world. In fact, often that is the paradigm or that is the set of glasses through which we view our own church. Here I am, I'm interacting with my church, I'm the customer. And without realising it or without thinking it, without even saying it, what we do when we use that paradigm to view our church is that what we say is the ultimate goal is customer satisfaction. That is what matters to me. If me, the customer, if you, the person in the seat, is happy with your church, we've done a great job. And if you, the church attendee, is unhappy for some reason, 
something's wrong. That's the way we view it. I can't help it. Sometimes that's just how I think about things. However, can I suggest to you that you and I are not separate from the church. In fact, we need to change our paradigm in order to view church correctly. You and I are the church. I can't say the church is not satisfying me. I am it. I am the church. We need to change our paradigm and instead it's probably more helpful to think of things in a team sport analogy. Now, some people are going to say, yes, he's going to talk about footy. I don't care whether it's footy, soccer, basketball, netball, you name it. Sunday is not a consumer transaction. Please don't come here to say, I hope the church will meet my needs today. The church is a team. We are actually a team of people. And Sunday is a team meeting. We are actually here to talk about the play, to encourage each other in our efforts to do what we are all together, acting in concert, supposed to be doing. This is what Chapman says. We're all committed to the same game. We're trying to achieve the same thing. Actually, we're here to bring the gospel of Jesus to people so that they might be saved. We're playing to see as many goals scored as possible. That is, as many people won for Christ through the preaching of the gospel. We all have the joy and privilege of being involved in this most important task. And we all share the gospel of Jesus with people whenever and however we can. It is simply part of growing like the Lord Jesus, who came to seek and save the lost. There's plenty of examples that we could use about a group of people acting together with a common purpose. The team sport analogy is just one. But just like Barnabas and Paul and their ascending church were on a mission together, you and I, as part of Canterbury Gardens, not separate to it, we are on a mission together. And our task is actually not about being here. Our task is actually about sharing the gospel and building God's kingdom. Our job is not to fill the seats. That is not the measure. Our job is not to have the most amazing music team, although I think we do. That is not the measure. Our job is not even to have the most amazing preachers. That is not the measure. Our task as God's church is to share the gospel. The hardest thing, John Chapman says, and I agree with him, the hardest part in all evangelism is starting. We will do almost anything except begin. We'll do another training course. We'll read another book. That line got me a bit because that's why I bought this book. We form yet another committee. We even go to prayer meetings. But if we haven't started, then it's time. The only way to learn it is to do it. Can I challenge us? I found this so convicting. Sometimes if I'm asked to comment about the health of our church, the, the, the numbers and the things that I talk about are not actually what measures a healthy church. Certainly does not the things that God would measure his church by. So I ask myself this, well, 
if actually where the team is supposed to be kicking goals for God's kingdom, what are the goals we're supposed to be kicking? And if I look at those things, how would I describe our church? Do I actually come to church wanting to be equipped to share the gospel or am I here for some other purpose? What would change in the way I view my interactions with Canterbury Gardens Community Church if I dismiss that consumer paradigm out of my mind and instead adopt a team sport paradigm? What happens if I see you as my teammates instead of just a fellow consumer who comes to the same place to get their dose of spirituality on a Sunday morning? Am I willing to let go of my customer satisfaction mindset? You know, I might not like everything here, but if we're seeing people come to know Jesus, is that not the aim? Is that not the measure? We are on mission together. We are on mission together. Secondly, so that's mission. We are on a mission together. Secondly, mission involves a strategy. There are lots of decisions to be made about how to share the gospel, who to share the gospel with, when to go. And we can see deliberate choices being made by Saul and Barnabas as they go out and start sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. They knew that God was sending them out. We get no indication about where they should start, who they should talk to, And as we look at it closely, we actually can see that they're quite strategic about how they went about the task. They didn't just blindly go out and randomly start. Their first stop is the island of Cyprus. Why? Probably because Barnabas was actually a Cypriot by birth. In fact, there was a whole lot of other Cypriots in the church at Antioch, people who had come from the island of Cyprus and lived in Antioch and attended the church there. And in fact, it seems that that's why Barnabas had gone from, been sent from Jerusalem to Antioch in the first place, because he could identify well with those people. And when they get to Cyprus, where do they go? Not to the market. They go where they will find people who understand the scriptures. They go to the synagogue. Why? Because Saul is a He's so well-versed in the Old Testament, he can actually explain the gospel to these people using the scriptures, using the Old Testament. He can demonstrate to them, look, you know the promises of God. You know the history of the Old Testament. You know what God has said to his people over the years. Look, it has come true. He takes people who are ready to hear or capable of understanding, and he's capable of speaking their language. There's a fantastic sermon, it's quite long, but it's a, it's a brilliant sermon, the way Paul presents the gospel to these people who know the Old Testament way. We also see that this is where we stop hearing about Saul and we start hearing about Paul. Most people think that happened when uh, Saul met uh, Jesus on the road to Damascus. That's not where, when he started using his new name. It's actually now. Why does he do that? Saul is a super Jewish name. Paul, much more Gentile name, much more readily accepted uh, as someone who can talk to the Gentiles. No offence to any Pauls here. I've got a really Jewish name too. 
So the question for us is this. How can we then, as Canterbury Gardens Community Church, how do we use our unique giftings, our people, our location, our setting, our context, our neighbourhood, the combination of skills and abilities that are in our team, how do we use those things to spread the gospel? I know a church in South Melbourne who is absolutely surrounded by the gay community. You know what? They make that their thing. They make it their thing to speak the gospel to people who are living a gay lifestyle. There's a church in Phillip Island, Phillip Island Baptist Church. And you know what? They are super good at reaching out to holiday makers. They know that in the school holidays, particularly in the summer, that place swells with holiday makers. And they made it their thing. What is it for us? More importantly, what is it for you? What is the setting that God has put you in? What are the unique giftings? What are the talents? What are the connections, the networks, the opportunities? How is it that you, how is it that I can take up those opportunities and use them to share the gospel? God doesn't give it to you just because. God has placed us each in a unique setting with a unique set of skills How can you use them to share the gospel? We know that that is God's will for us, to be sharing the gospel with those who we come about. So we know the church has a mission. We are actually on mission together. It involves strategy. We actually have some decisions to make about where we will go and who we will share with. And those decisions ought to be made in wisely applying the uniqueness of our setting, both individually and as a church. Lastly, the gospel is oozing out of them. It's not a very scientific or uh, apt description. But let me, let me demonstrate you to this way <clears throat> by another story, uh, not from the same website. There was once a preacher who was an avid golfer. I see we've got another golf reference here. Every chance he got, he would be on the golf course swinging away. In fact, for him, it was an obsession. One Sunday was a picture-perfect day for golf. The sun was out, there was no clouds in the sky, the temperature was just right, and the wind was was low. The preacher was in a quandary as to what to do, and shortly the urge to play golf overcame him. There's no claim that this was the Holy Spirit's leading. He calls his assistant tell them, uh, to tell them that he was sick and that he couldn't do church that day. He packed up the car and he drove three hours to a golf course where no one would recognise him. And happily, he began to play the course. An angel up above was watching the preacher and became quite perturbed. He went to God and said, look at that preacher. He should be punished for what he's doing. God nodded in agreement. Well, the preacher teed up for the first hole. He swung at the ball and it sailed effortlessly. 250 metres, landed on the green and rolled straight into the hole. A picture-perfect hole-in-one. He was absolutely amazed and excited. The angel, however, was a little shocked. He turned to God and said, I beg your pardon, but I thought we were going to punish him. God smiled and said, we did. Think about it. Who can he tell? 
We want to share things that we're excited about, don't we? We actually can't help the things that we really are passionate about, we actually can't help talking about them. If you ask me what my thing is right now, it's caravans. Right? I'm actually shopping for a caravan. I can tell you the difference between a Jayco Expander and a Windsor Rapid. I can tell you which ones have independent rear suspension or all those things. Rear suspension, it's not, it's not rears. Um, I can tell you all the different features. I can tell you how much you should spend on a new one and how much you value you can get out of an old one, where they break, where they don't, blah, 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 three-way fridge. I can tell you all those things. In fact, every time I'm sitting on the couch looking at my iPad, Carolyn says, what are you doing? Oh, it's caravans, isn't it? I'm getting as much information as I can get. I'm looking. I'm learning. But I've got to tell you, I don't feel the same way all the time about the gospel. And yet... He's way more exciting than a caravan. He's way more exciting, in fact, than anything ever. And we can see in Paul and Barnabas this absolute commitment to sharing the gospel, not just because they've been sent to do it. It's not a job. You know, it's five o'clock. We can finish talking about God now. Go and look at caravans. (laughs) They can't help it. In fact, when... (laughs) When the opposition comes, you know, they, they get absolutely smashed. At one stage, they get, Paul gets stoned and left for dead. By, by a miracle of God, he's able to get up and he's up and about the next day. But he doesn't stop and he says, oh, you know, I'm starting to have a second think about this whole preaching thing. You know, it's really not working out the way I thought. He can't help it. It's so exciting for him. It has changed his heart so much, he just has to talk about it. I feel like Sometimes, I know, at least for myself, I've lost that. I've lost that passion, that thing that says in my heart, you know, the gospel is so incredible. I've just got to tell you. I've got to tell you this thing, you know. Do you, have you ever heard about Jesus? Do you realize that all those hang-ups, all that feelings of guilt that you've got, do you know that there's actually a way to deal with that? I don't find myself with the same passion sometimes I think we get a bit confused between sharing the gospel and living out our faith we sometimes like to hang our hat on this uh, quote from Francis Assisi you know preach the gospel always and when necessary use words can I tell you the gospel is words the gospel is the message My good moral behaviour is not the gospel. It's not going to save anyone. People won't look to my good moral behaviour and my silent mouth and know, they won't know to praise God. It's a bit like watching the news on mute or Cam's video before, you know. You knew it was about Cam, you knew he had something to say, but all you could see was he had a nice white T-shirt on and jeans and he was going like this. Unless we say the message of the gospel, it actually doesn't come out. Yes, our conduct should enforce, reinforce the message. But I can tell you, I'm super pleased to know that the gospel doesn't rely on my good moral conduct. Because if it relied on your conduct and my conduct, we're all in a lot of trouble. In fact, the gospel is the gospel because it doesn't rely on my conduct. It applies despite my conduct. 
can ask you these questions. Have you lost sight of the gospel? Like me, do you get excited about other things but not necessarily about the message of Jesus? How will you and I refresh our amazement with the gospel to the point where it stirs up in my heart so much that it has to come out in one way or another? Can I ask you another question? Have you actually heard and understood it for yourself? Have you heard and understood the gospel for yourself? If you haven't, then can I take two minutes to tell you that this is God's world. God's in charge of it. He made it. He rules it. And that includes you and me. God says that Jesus is the rightful ruler of the world. None of us want Jesus as ruler, particularly not of us. And so we reject his rule. We say, no thanks, I'll take it myself. God says we ought to stop doing that. God says there is a person who should rule our lives, and that is Jesus. And that if we don't accept Jesus' rule, then we will actually ultimately lead ourselves to death and destruction. God also tells us that if we allow Jesus to be the ruler of our lives, then we can be then we can be treated as if we never had rebelled, and we can be treated as if we had always had Jesus as ruler. And we can live life to the full right now, and we can live life eternal with God. We can live life without shame and without guilt and without wondering what life is actually all about. If you have never, ever made a decision to follow Jesus, then you've actually just heard the invitation right there. And an invitation, no matter what form it comes in, actually requires a response. You can't not ever respond to an invitation, can you? Because you either accept it or you don't. And by doing nothing, you're not accepting, you're rejecting. The invitation is for you. It is for you. There are no exceptions. There is no person that God can't save. There is no past that God can't redeem. There is no guilt that God can't extinguish. And there is no need that he can't fill. There is no addiction that he can't overcome. There's no heart that he can't soften. There's no background that he can't use. There is no exceptions. The only real reason, sorry, the only real question that we have to answer is this. Are you going to stick it out yourself as boss of your own life? Or are you willing to hand it over to someone who's actually qualified for the job? I'm going to ask the music team to come up. But I'm going to pray just now. And can I ask you, if you've never heard and responded in accepting the gospel for yourself... I'm going to challenge you to do that today and I'm going to challenge you to talk to someone about that after this. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for extending to us the undeserving uh, grace that you show to us in Jesus. Thank you for the gospel the truth that we can actually be treated 
uh, differently to the way we deserve. Thank you for uh, the invitation that you issue to all of us. Lord, we ask that uh, we would understand that invitation, that it would hit us right in the heart. Help us, Lord, to respond to it. Help us, Lord, to live in it, to not think that we are made uh, right or that we're pleasing to you by the things that we do, the way that we dress, the words that we use when we talk, the number of ministries we're involved in, any of those things. Lord, help us to remember that it's actually Jesus who makes us acceptable to you. Amen.